Welcome to this American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville and Co-Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my Co-Editor-in-Chief from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I am absolutely delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Ira Jacobson, who is a professor of medicine in the NYU Grossman School of Medicine in New York and director of hepatology as well. And today we'll discuss his recent article, Cholangiopathy After Severe COVID-19, Clinical Features and Prognostic Implications, which was published online in May of this year in the American Journal of Gastroenterology and is now out in print in the July 2021 issue. Dr. Jacobson, welcome. Let's begin simply. We are now a year and a half into this global pandemic, COVID-19. Over 34 million Americans have been infected and over 605,000 have died from this terrible virus. From a biologic standpoint, how does COVID-19 affect the liver? Well, firstly, Brian, thank you very much for having me on behalf of a number of co-authors, including many of our hepatology faculty and two very earnest fellows including Drs. Faruqi and Okolis, who were the first and second authors of this paper. We all appreciate the opportunity to discuss it. I think the question, as I would phrase it in my mind, is how does COVID-19 affect the liver, and does it affect the liver in part by infecting the liver, which is inherent in your question. It's not clear at all that this syndrome of very severe hepatobiliary disease that uh, we and now several others have described as well, of a sclerosing cholangitis type picture in patients who have been recovering from very severe COVID involving prolonged courses of mechanical ventilation and all the interventions that our audience knows pertain there too how that affects the liver. And we have a number of hypotheses, one of which is indeed that perhaps the virus affects the liver. And most directly, we can say that ACE2 receptors are richly expressed in particular on biliary cells, more than on hepatocytes. The literature is actually mixed on whether there's ACE2 expression on hepatocytes at all. But if they are, it it seems to be quantitatively to a much lesser degree than cholangiocytes, which immediately makes you think that perhaps indeed viral infection of the cholangiocytes is what leads to this very severe biliary, specifically biliary picture, which is dominated biochemically by extraordinarily high elevations of the ALK-FAS and concomitant elevations to sometimes impressive extents, but not nearly as remarkable of the ALT and AST. We do know from experiments with things called liver organoids that biliary cells can be infected by the virus. And there have been a few papers that have professed to see virus when the appropriate imaging or staining is done of viral particles in biliary cells. And there've been a couple of reports in liver cells as well. Again, I'm not sure that that's universally accepted as directly reflecting hepatocyte infection. We've thought a lot about the possibility of cholangiocyte infection being what's pathogenic here, but there are so many other factors one can invoke, including ischemia. We all know about the thrombotic processes that occur widely, and some have actually described microscopically, uh, small thromboses in liver vessels. We didn't happen to see those in the four biopsies we described in our paper. There's uh, shock liver, which is another type of non-occlusive ischemia, but that's usually heralded by big spikes in the ALT and AST to levels well over 1,000. Although we had a number of patients with ALTs and ASTs in the high multi-hundred range, they didn't have typical pictures of shock liver. So we don't think that that's likely to be it. So hypoxia is another possibility that comes under the the broad umbrella, I suppose, of a type of ischemic injury. 
We talked in our paper about pharmacologic effects. These patients get lots of drugs, but although there are certain drugs people were getting early in the epidemic, like uh, leprinavir and ritonavir, even remdesivir, when that came online, we know can cause elevations in the ALT and AST. Those drugs and the others that we've used, the, the biologics like tocilizumab and such, cerulimab, things like that, really aren't known to cause such profound cholestasis, much less macroscopically visible injury to the biliary tree. And then finally, we considered the syndrome that we described really resembles, and we talk about this in the paper a lot, something called secondary sclerosing cholangitis of critical illness, which is a rare but well-described, at least in a few papers, not many hundreds of patients, I would say, but still out there, second SSC of critical illness, it's called secondary sclerosing cholangitis. And this looks like that. And heaven knows that these patients have been critically ill. In fact, we only saw it in our dozen patients and people who'd been critically ill, all with mechanical ventilation, several with ECMO, all of them with very prolonged hospitalizations whose cholangitis was noted relatively late in their course. So I guess the question about what's causing this could fall back onto that. What causes secondary sclerosis and cholangitis after critical illness? And if you read those papers, they speculate on the same things that I just have without the possibility of viral infection being on the list. So we do know that you don't have to have a viral infection to get this type of picture after critical illness. But whether it happens with such frequency in these patients, such as we describe in our series, due to a co-effect of viral infection remains an open question. Wonderful. Thank you for such a comprehensive overview discussing kind of this biologic plausibility. So if we consider a patient who has been infected with COVID, what symptoms might they have that would suggest liver injury? Or do we simply need to check liver chemistries in everybody? Just as a postscript to the remarks I just made, the specific concept that I wanted to get across in secondary sclerosis and cholangitis of critical illness, and in this entity, is the idea of a cytokine storm, that the cytokines that are being massively expressed in this syndrome might cause biliary injury. Now, as far as the question about the symptoms that might lead one to a diagnosis of or investigation for this entity, which really has to be done by MRI with MRCP, we really were tipped off to this by the chemistries. Other than the jaundice that characterize a number of our patients, which obviously is a physical sign that should be obvious on daily rounds, really what we were struck by were the markedly elevated chemistries, particularly the alkaline phosphatases, which in every patient except one of our 12 peaked at well over 1,000, some were over 2,000 standard units per liter. The only one that wasn't 1,000 was 995 at the peak. And we had ALTs ranging from 100 or so to as high as six or 700, which is actually higher for the ALT than a few of the other papers that have described this entity have have mentioned. And we, you, you actually asked us in your letter to us uh, in the revisions to explain these ALT elevations. So the first thing we did when we got that question from you and your colleagues was to go back and look and see if these patients did chronologically have events of hypotension that would have created a shock liver type picture biochemically. We couldn't find that. So we didn't see in our four biopsies that much hepatocellular necrosis, if any. To this day, I don't know why the cells were leaking so much ALT and AST, but that remains uh, something else that one could investigate in the future. We realized several months into the terrible COVID epidemic here in New York that we were seeing these patients, quite a number of them, uh, who went ultimately into this series, these remarkably high chemistries, and that's really what tipped us off. 
That's great. So you've kind of touched on a little bit of this too, but what are some of the most common presentations of COVID-induced liver injury other than these marked elevations in liver chemistries? And what are some of the more alarming features our listeners should be aware of? Well, I think this syndrome that we're calling COVID-associated cholangiopathy or just COVID cholangiopathy, as has also been suggested by our colleagues who published a smaller series in the journal a couple of months before we did. COVID cholangiopathy is probably the simplest way to do this. You should always think of it as a possibility in patients who've had the alarming features of COVID itself. So these patients, uh, both in their smaller series and our larger ones, and uh, as well as a couple of other scattered case reports, all emphasize how sick these patients were, the prolonged time on mechanical ventilation in intensive care units, often with a history of sepsis and or multi-organ failure. And then all you need are those chemistries on top of that, with that as a background to think of this syndrome. But there aren't any alarming clinical features other than, as I mentioned, jaundice, for example, that would tip you off to this. These patients had remarkably high sedimentation rates, CRPs, ferritin levels, often well over a thousand, but these are nonspecific. Nevertheless, I would suggest that this entity be considered in any patient who meets that more general description and has any undue amount of liver enzyme elevation. And when I say that, I do want to point out that there have been a number of papers published, very large series of multi-thousand patient series from large hospitals or hospital networks describing liver cell, uh, liver enzyme abnormalities. And most of those center on various degrees of ALT elevation. So there was one in hepatology, for example, that described the frequencies with which ALTs that were mildly elevated were noted. And it was anywhere between 45 and 65%, depending on how you defined an elevated ALT. And then moderately elevated was defined as two to five times the upper limit of normal, and then the fewest but severe ALT elevations above five times normal were anywhere between about 6 and 15 or 16 percent. That particular paper came from Betsy Verna, a wonderful hepatologist at Columbia, published in Hepatology with a number of co-authors. And that is really not what tipped us off, because those other papers all said, we don't see much of the ALKFOS here. So to us, it was the cholestatic features that separated this syndrome from I think the much more widely observed elevations in ALT that are really rather nonspecific and so far at least not tied to any distinct histologic or radiographic abnormality the way these patients were. Dr. Jacobson, I think you may have beat me to the punch a little bit. I was just thinking about in your study, you focused on a group of patients characterized by inflammation and injury to the biliary tract. And you just mentioned this marked elevation in alkaline phosphatase. Were there other findings that also led you to investigate these patients in a more systematic manner? No, we got systematic about it just by the sheer numbers of patients we were seeing who had these very cholestatic chemistries. It was really that simple. In fact, when we got together as a group and decided how to organize this study, we said, okay, we've got to establish a cutoff as to what's tipping us off here about this entity that is really only revealed with radiographic studies and again, specifically MRI and MRCP. We decided as an inflection point, which got incorporated into the methodology of our paper to make the ALKFAS above three times normal because it was obvious that all these patients had such high ALKFASs. And one of the self-admitted limitations of the paper is that we may only have been describing a series of 12 patients at the extreme end of the spectrum. Who's to say that patients with lesser degrees of cholestatic liver injury or possibly even patients without elevations in the ALKFAS of much note 
might have more subtle abnormalities with the biliary tract were you to investigate them. So uh, we mentioned in our paper that the 12 patients were of a series of something over 2,000. It was, it was literally 0.59% of the admissions during the time period, which we thought was high because that's one in 200 patients or so. That's a lot. Of course, in an absolute sense, it's not. It's not a great deal of patients. But to this day, it's the largest series by far that I know of that's been accumulated. I know that of at least one other group that's compiling a series of, of similar size. And I, I do believe they'll probably uh, describe the same features. So we defined our cutoff as ALKFAS over three times. We went over the records of all the patients admitted with COVID. And it turns out that these patients had all been seen by our consultation service. So we, we knew them already. And we think we captured all of those with enzyme ALKFAS elevations of this degree. I would make a point of saying that the GGTPs are elevated to the same astronomical extent. But as you know, Brian, GGTP is mostly of use in clinical medicine to tell you if somebody's high ALKFAS is coming from the liver or someplace else like bone or intestine. So we made our defining point for the inquiry, uh, the ALKFAS being over three times normal. For your study, you've already mentioned that fact that these extensive review of liver chemistries, you mentioned MR scans. What else was methodologically perform in your study to really make this a cohesive group? We gathered as much information as we could to see what features the patients had in common. So we chose a number of parameters to tabulate. In fact, it was with uh, your and Dr. Spiegel's nudging that we put together a, an incredibly detailed table that, that I think was the finishing touch. And I'm grateful to you that you had us do that because it really gave us a quantitative handle. But we had chosen all the parameters, I think, correctly in the first place, and they were more descriptive in the first version, and then we tabulated them. So I mentioned the ferritin, the C-reactive protein, the sedimentation rate. We uh, compiled data from the get-go on all the medications because we were aware of the fact that this could be a form of drug-induced uh, liver injury. We uh, focused on parameters of the patient's clinical course. Not only whether they'd been on mechanical ventilation or got NECMO, but how long they'd been on mechanical ventilation. We tabulated data on other organ injuries, in particular focusing on renal function. The mean creatinine of our patients, for example, was six during their courses, which tells you how sick they were. So that's, that's really how we did it. It was a very comprehensive, and I should add IRB-approved, a retrospective chart review where we just cast out a net incorporating as many parameters as we can think of and because we did that up front, we didn't have to go back and do a catch-up on uh, too much after that to answer some of the questions that we wanted to answer. Wonderful. You've already mentioned that in terms of the results of your study, these market elevations in alkaline phosphatase and other liver chemistries, could you tell us a little bit about the results in terms of the imaging? Because you've mentioned MR studies twice. Yes. So, uh, you know, we've all agreed for over two decades now that cholestatic injury should always be imaged initially by MRCP. We shouldn't go to ERCP. I remember the transition very clearly in my career in the mid-90s when MRCP became available and we stopped doing diagnostic ERCPs. These are the last patients in the world who one should have sent for an ERCP if there was any possible way not to do them, so we didn't. 
And that's why we have all the MRCP images from five patients in our paper, and including serial ones, and I'll get back to that in a moment. Our paper mentions that we ERCP'd either two or three of these patients, and they just verified diffuse liver injury, actually more severe in the intrahepatic portions than the extrahepatic portions, which unfortunately left us with very few, if any, therapeutic avenues that ERCP could provide. Sonography and CT probably were done in a small number of these patients as the initial inquiry, but from the point of view of what we as a consulting service recommended to the teams that called us in for these cholestatic injury uh, pictures, we really recommended MRCP from the get-go because it was clear that that would be the only satisfactory way to really address the question of whether there was injury to the larger bile ducts. And indeed, when the first couple gave us a yield in the form of these very, very abnormal ERCPs that would easily match any series of patients with inflammatory bowel disease and severe primary sclerosis and cholangitis, we knew that MRCP was indeed the way to go at the outset of our consultative work on these patients. So now that you've got all these results, how did you treat these series of patients? Fairly helplessly, I have to say. As I mentioned, ERCP in the a few occasions when we did it, uh, with stent placement, did not make any difference. And I, I think we really stopped doing those when it became clear that the pattern of injury was really not conducive, for example, stenting a dominant stricture in the common duct because most of the disease was upstairs in the intrahepatic biliary tree. Uh, it was diffuse narrowing, beating, all the things, you know, any classic description of PSC would tell you what we saw in these patients. And secondary sclerosis and cholangitis of critical illness kind of looks the same. So then we thought of pharmacologic approaches. At least half of our patients had gotten steroids already and developed the syndrome nevertheless, because you'll recall with me that steroids were used early in the course, even before dexamethasone was found to actually have efficacy. And since then, it's become routine. So we didn't have the collective anecdotal impression that steroids were preventing this. Of course, often the steroids would have been stopped by the time the syndrome became apparent. But in the event, I don't think we ended up using high doses of steroids to try to treat this picture once it emerged or reinstituting them had they already been given but then stopped. What we did do, which is every hepatologist reflex to biliary injury that you don't know what else to do with, we gave Urso. And I think at least 11 of our 13 patients ended up on Urso. Now, the issue of whether Urso helps people with PSE involves a longer discussion than we have time for today. It's had a very checkered history, culminating in early promise, and then a very high dose of 30 milligrams per kilogram that was published in Hepatology in 2009 that actually harmed the patients and made a lot of people stop using Urso for PSC. I myself have continued to be a proponent uh, of Urso because it does improve the biochemical picture. I don't think that the PBC-type doses we use cause harm. And I've always thought that if it causes a favorable impact on the chemical picture, maybe it'll help the underlying disease. But we've never proven that. And that's why Urso remains unapproved and controversial to this day, though I think at our institution, the majority of my colleagues and I continue to use it. So with that kind of reasoning, I mean, we know it's good for dissolution of cholesterol stones in the gallbladder, but that's about it. We went ahead and used Urso in most of these patients. And, you know, some of our patients have done very badly, as we report. They were on Urso. Some of our patients have slowly improved, though I'm not aware yet of a single one whose chemistries have normalized completely or whose biochemical pictures of sclerosis and cholangitis have resolved or even improved very much, I'm sorry to say. So I have no idea whether the RSO has helped or not. I do know that patient that I've seen for the longest time, now approaching mm, the better part of a year, probably 10 months or so, has slowly improved his ALKFOS to about 200 from over 1,000. 
and he's on Urso. So I say to myself, well, who am I to stop it? Maybe it's helping, but we really have no idea. And this is a syndrome that's crying out for further investigation. The good news that I'll say, and this preempts, I think, another question you might have been preparing to ask me, is that we're seeing much less of this nowadays. I don't know when the last time was our hepatology consult service was asked to see one of these patients, but we've tried to continue to collect them, and none have been added lately. And I think that just reflects you know, a diminishing number of severe COVID patients. Not that they're not there anymore, but the numbers are vastly less, thank goodness, and perhaps the care has changed such as monoclonal antibodies and such that even the patients getting COVID aren't getting it as severely as they did. So both the absolute numbers of COVID patients have gone down. And I think the severity index, if I could call it that, has gone down dramatically, thank goodness. So I, I, I'm not sure how much of a chance we'll get to investigate this. What we are committed to is following the patients that we've seen longitudinally. And as mentioned in our paper, one has already had a transplant. There have been three others, I believe, reported in the literature of transplanted patients from this entity. So that's how seriously we, we have to take it when it occurs. I follow several of these myself. As I mentioned, they all continue to have biochemical abnormalities, some of which are hanging up with alkphoses in the multi-hundred range, some of which are very slowly but steadily improving with the patients doing relatively well. But the patient I mentioned with the Alphos of 200 still has a bilirubin of about two and a half, and the MRI doesn't look any changed. We presented a couple of cases or pairs of pictures in our paper showing that over a period averaging about four or five months apart, the picture actually worsened in a couple of patients. And we lost one of our patients whose picture had worsened after the first few months who died with a bilirubin of 35 or so of liver failure. Very, very sad. About a 70-year-old gentleman who'd been healthy before all of this. Healthy to the extent that there were no other life-limiting conditions. But yes, our patients did have their share of diabetes and especially hypertension. So you mentioned in your paper, and you just talked about liver transplantation, that one of your patients underwent a living donor liver transplantation, and you considered five patients for consideration of yes. liver transplantation. Just briefly, how are those patients doing? Yes. So one of them still has very advanced liver disease and is on the active list but does not have a living donor. So he's having to wait his turn. Well, one of the five was the gentleman I just mentioned who was considered for liver transplantation, but thought to be, it was actually about 73 and had a couple of comorbidities that made the transplant prohibitive. He died and at least one of the others who we mentioned had been referred for transplant evaluation died as well. And then the last one also died at another hospital of hepatic insufficiency, but also recurrent sepsis. So we, we actually got word about that patient from the family with whom our team had kept up and was on the transplant list at another hospital when he passed away. Patients who were sick enough to require consideration of transplant evaluation and or get listed did not do well collectively. Dr. Jacobson, thinking about some of these patients, a few of them did so much better than some of the other patients. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's a genetic issue? Do you think it was the dose of the virus or the length of time they were exposed to the virus? Do you think it's comorbid conditions? That's a great question. I, my initial instinct is to think that it's not related to virus dose because after all, every one of these patients had very severe life-threatening COVID in the first place. So it's hard to imagine that there's a gradient of viral dose that gets you to severe COVID, but then you recover. That's different from the viral dose that gets you to severe COVID, but the hepatobiliary picture 
is severe and doesn't get better. I, I just, you know, I would think that earlier manifestations and other features of the illness would be more related to viral or exposure, but it, it's still an interesting question. Of course, I, as I've gotten older as a physician, almost everything seems genetic to me sometimes, whether it's irritable bowel, diabetes, you can tell me about that much more than I can tell you, diverticulitis. <laughs> or anything else you happen to name. Reflux, I think everything has a genetic component. So who's to say that this hepatobiliary picture uh, that we're calling COVID cholangiopathy doesn't have a genetic issue? We have not done any investigations on that. I certainly haven't seen any reports, so I have no idea. And, I, and nor do I have an idea of why some of these patients did better than others. You've already kind of mentioned the role of imaging, especially with MR imaging. Could you comment on the value of a liver biopsy in these patients? I should comment that the histologic findings in the papers that have been written, including a paper from Dr. Roth at Northwell, excellent pathologist, Dr. Crawford there, Dr. Thies is are also a very renowned pathologist. The, the liver biopsy descriptions are a little bit all over the place. There's no pathognomonic picture that has emerged from this. We describe patients with a picture of large bile duct obstruction. Uh, several authors, including ourselves, described uh, reactive bile ducts, which we used to call bile duct proliferation. A couple of papers, including the Northwell one, described uh, cholangiocyte necrosis. One paper described some periportal inflammation, but nothing as intense as you might expect, for example, with an autoimmune type hepatitis. So. Nothing pathognomonic, and I think this part of the field would benefit from additional histologic study. I'm just not sure how much of an opportunity we're going to get to do that, because I have to acknowledge that the four liver biopsies we did, although of great interest to us academically, led to no therapeutic intervention whatsoever. And it was really the MRCPs that were diagnostic. And personally, if I were asked to see one of these patients tomorrow in the hospital, I would do the MRCP, but I probably would only justify the liver biopsy if it were part of a research study. And, you know, this isn't the greatest setting in which to do liver biopsies for research purposes. So it's very important academically to figure this out. But I don't know that we're going to get an opportunity unless COVID comes back to haunt us for even longer than we have feared till now. Well, hopefully not. And you've kind of touched on this as well with more and more Americans getting vaccinated, whether they're first dose or second dose, maybe with some of those medications you've already mentioned using dexamethasone and other agents. Do you think we'll be seeing fewer cases of cholangiopathy after a COVID infection? I think we will because of the general epidemiologic trend that we've mentioned. I mean, we're all worried about the same thing these days, which is Delta and the Delta Plus variant and whether this is going to come back to bite us. You know, I think the evidence that's just come out as late as this week, yesterday, in fact, suggests that the vaccines are not quite as preventive of infection. There's a study from Israel suggesting 63% protection that I heard about in the news, but still 93% protection, down from 97% to be sure, but still comforting, if not entirely so, evidence against severe infection or death. So unless a variant comes up that causes anything like the wave we saw last year, heaven forbid, I just don't think we're going to see that much more of this. Hopefully, hopefully we never see it again. That would be wonderful. That answered your question, Brian. No, absolutely. And so as we wind down here, what about the long-term prognosis for this small group of patients who were so very, very sick? Do you think we'll see an uptake in liver transplants in the next few years for this group? Yes. We are report of one patient having received a living donor, which for a little while we thought would be the first case reported. It was not the first. 
ended up being, I think there was one reported before we came out with this paper, even online. They're all single, by the way. By the way, if you go in PubMed and you put in uh, COVID cholangiopathy, you get seven papers right now. So one of those papers was a case report, and they mentioned that two of their patients got transplanted, but they provided absolutely no other information, almost an afterthought in the discussion that they mentioned this. So I have no details about that, but I, I think altogether it's four or five now if you count them all up generally one at a time, maybe two in that paper. That's about it. But yes, I think we're still hoping that the patient who remains listed at our center, who's very ill, but not, thank goodness, preterminally ill, uh, stably ill, will get his transplant. We talk about him frequently at our weekly liver transplant conferences. And I'm sure that there are other centers that, that have similar patients, but I would venture to guess in very small numbers. For as long as we see COVID cholangiopathy, I think transplant will remain an option for the sickest of them but I think the absolute numbers are going to be very low. Dr. Jacobson, thank you so much. This has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Thank you for educating me and our listeners. Any last thoughts for our listeners here today? No, as we expressed in our last sentence of the paper, we'd love to understand the pathogenesis of all of this. Who knows what else it might teach us? Part of me would have yearned for the opportunity to, to learn more about the pathogenesis. Part of me will be relieved if we never quite figure it out because we don't see it anymore. So that's that's my parting thought. I still don't know exactly what did this. I, I continue to suspect it's not the virus itself. It's not viral infection, even though that remains a very interesting question because of the ACE2 receptor expression on cholangiocytes. But I think it, you know, whatever causes secondary sclerosis and cholangitis of critical illness probably is at the root of this syndrome, maybe with some features peculiar to COVID, like the viral infection superimposed for additional effect. Because otherwise, we shouldn't have seen 12 cases in one series. Those are my final thoughts, Brian. And I'd like to thank you for hosting me today for this discussion, which I've enjoyed very much. And how can I end without thanking you for publishing our paper? No, thanks so much on behalf of our listeners. And again, thank you to the American College of Gastroenterology and the American Journal of Gastroenterology. And for our listeners, thanks for tuning in today and stay tuned for our next podcast. Dr. Jacobson, thanks so much and stay well. Thank you.